you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, last week, we started talking about a section of Scripture, and we didn't quite get all the way through it, and so you'll notice on your core guide this morning that um, it's part two. And uh, I thought, you know, if I had part two, which means I had some of this written for last week, but you know how the Holy Spirit works. Um, I got something totally new, but it is a follow-on from last week. Uh, so we're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And uh, before I read the verses for you today, uh, we're going to pick up in Matthew 5, uh, verse 43. As I was, I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount kind of over and over these last weeks and months. And uh, I, I made a connection that I had never seen before that I thought you might be interested in. And I wrote on the question guide on your core guide. So on the very back, I'm just going to touch on this. This is not the sermon, but I, I just want point to point something out to you because I am asking your core groups to discuss it a little bit. Because um, early in chapter 5, if you remember, Jesus goes through, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. We call those the Beatitudes. And what I started doing was laying those alongside the teaching that Jesus gives, the way that Matthew lays it out, um, starting in verse 21, so the section that he goes through talking about murder and anger, adultery and lust, uh, divorce and swearing oaths and an eye for an eye and, and those sorts of things. And I, and I noticed that there's some correlation between um, the virtues that are sort of identified in the Beatitudes uh, and the teaching that he calls us to a little bit later. And so in, in your core guide, I've put some pairings, like um, if you take uh, Matthew 5, verse 3, where it says, the poor in spirit, uh, I was thinking if you put that right alongside the teaching on anger, you might come up, with, there's a correlation there, the, the poor in spirit are those who don't think more highly of themselves than they should. And so they will resist becoming sinfully angry um, with, and, and they will resist defaming other people. And so you, you, people who have these virtues will resist um, the things that Jesus teaches a little bit later on. Another one, as an example, um, in Matthew 5, 7, says, Blessed are the merciful... The merciful would be people, if we put that alongside the teaching on revenge and retaliation, uh, put merciful next to it that, and you say, the merciful do not retaliate because they have been shown mercy and will in turn extend that to others. One more uh, for, your, for your thoughts, and then I'll let your core groups loose in uh, making those pairings and, and discussing and coming up with these, these things. Uh, verse 8, Matthew 5, 8, um, is the one where he says, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart, if you lay that alongside the text that I'm going to read for you this morning, 
you'll notice that the pure in heart will love friend and enemy for whom Jesus gave his life for all. So that might be an interesting way as you're reading through uh, the Sermon on the Mount to, to make some connections there. Um, I hope that feeds you and interests you as much as it, it has for me this past week. We pick up the Sermon on the Mount in our message for today in, um, in verse 43. It says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the Bible doesn't teach to hate your enemy. But Jesus is picking up on something that typically happens in the human spirit and had worked its way into uh, some of the teachings in the religious system. There are places, there are psalms that talk about the human emotion of, of hatred. So Jesus is sort of picking up on what's out there. Love your neighbor. You've heard it, it was said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I think it was attributed to Mark Twain. I couldn't, I couldn't go back and find that this was an actual quote of Mark Twain, but it's been attributed to him over the years. He said... Um, Something like this, he said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's not hard to understand, is it? Jesus, he kind of spits that out. It's very straightforward. It's very direct. There's not really any room for misinterpreting what Jesus says. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not hidden in a parable. He just lays it out there. This is what is required. But what's easy to understand is that's hard for us, isn't it? It's incredibly difficult to do this teaching. A week ago this past Thursday, you may have tuned in and watched part of it, an event called the National Prayer Breakfast. And uh, Arthur Brooks, who he's a professor at Harvard, professing Christian, was asked to be the keynote speaker to give a devotional thought at the National Prayer Breakfast. Arthur Brooks has, within the last year, written a book called Love Your 
enemies. And he's speaking into the current political climate um, in our country. And so he, if, you have, if you didn't watch his devotional, Google it. It's worth watching his devotional. I, I thought it was very well done. Um, in his book, he's writing about how we uh, increasingly view people who disagree with us not merely as incorrect or misguided, but as worthless. And Brooks talked about how contempt uh, that we carry for others kills our relationships. He talks about um, how contempt is ripping our country apart at the seams. Uh, and he says, this is a quote from him, some people say that we need more civility and tolerance, and I say that's nonsense. Why? Because civility and tolerance are too low a standard. I agree with that. He says, Jesus didn't say tolerate your enemies. He said love your enemies. Answer hatred with love. So he did this beautiful devotional thought. I mean, he set the table perfectly. He called everybody in that room to practice loving your enemies, and he's, he was calling all of us back to a national unity. The table was set perfectly. So after this devotional, um, and maybe you saw this, this is no political statement at all. This is just, I'm reporting what I saw. President Trump stood up and he said, Arthur, I don't know if I agree with you, but I like listening to you. Remember what Herod said of John the Baptist? I don't really buy what you're saying, but I really like listening to you. I mean, I was sort of wrecked when I, when I initially heard that. It's deeply saddening to hear someone just like flat out reject one of the core teachings of Jesus. But I didn't click it off. I watched through to the end. Um, and I really appreciated how our president ended his speech. Well, you can feel however you want about what he said in the middle. He was just brutally honest at the end. And I think he spoke in honesty when we read this teaching of Jesus that says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said, I'm sorry, it's difficult. I'm trying to learn. It's not easy. I mean, I, he took maybe words right out of my mouth. It's incredibly difficult. And I truly hope that he meant all of that. He's right. We're, it's terribly difficult for, not just for him, but for all of us when we really think about it. Now, the risk that we have is that we read this and we, and we sort of distance ourselves from those who are our enemies. Or we think about enemies in terms of, well, an enemy of the state or, you know, an enemy as being some far-off adversary that's somehow working against systems that we believe in. But the word that, that Matthew, 
that uses to report what, what Jesus was saying is it, it changes the definition of enemy. It, it dials it in where it hits really close to home. And so the, the word that is used for enemy here ranges in meaning from one who hates you to one who acts in hostile ways towards you to someone who simply opposes you. That's a pretty wide range in meaning. Maybe we could use the word adversary, the one who goes up against you, the one who uh, sits across the table or the aisle or whatever it is who is against you. That's maybe a better understanding of the word the enemy. Now, when I say love your enemies, it would be easy for us to distance ourselves from that. But to say, love your adversary, the ones who are currently opposing you, that brings it a whole lot closer to home, doesn't it? But Jesus goes on. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I'm praying for somebody, it's really hard to be angry with them. When I am actively praying for the good of someone else, it's hard for me to hold up any fight that I might have against them or, or with them. Because you lay all of those things at the foot of the cross, and we trust that Jesus is bigger than all of that. Pray for those who, what? Persecute you. Now, again, easy for us to remove ourselves from this text, create a little bit of a distance, and say, well, persecution is what happens to Christians in the Middle Eastern countries. And it is. There is some severe persecution that's happening around the globe. But if you look into the word that was used here, the word for persecute simply means to make someone run or flee, uh, to drive someone away, to harass, to mistreat. In other words, someone who is persecuting you, the ones that we are called to pray for, pray for those who persecute you, pray for those who are seeking your harm, pray for those who are seeking to bring you down. Pray for those who are working against you. Enemy, those who persecute you, end up being sort of one and the same. And Jesus says, my teaching on that is you love. You love those people. You, you, you pray for those people. And when you think of enemy with this understanding, you start to realize that sometimes the enemies who inflict the deepest wounds are the ones who are closest to you. Now, to lighten the tone in the room a little bit, because, I mean, even now, that's, that's heavy teaching. Um, how many of you are sports fans? But most of you. I'm not going to pick on the Seahawks, don't worry. There's, a divi there's division rivalries in sports, right? 
and the, your divisional opponents are the ones who you know the best. They're usually the ones who are closest to you geographically. That's done with intention because the rivalries make sports fun. But when you're on the field and you know that you're going to play your division rivals several times in a season, what happens? You get entrenched in beating the rival because you want to do it for your fans because your fans are all in. You know those opponents better than any other opponent. And so it doesn't matter how good or bad division rivals are, the games are usually always close, knock-down, drag-out fights, wars. Is that, that's accurate, right? And if you think about it in terms of being a fan, your two favorite teams are the one that you cheer for and whatever team is playing against your most bitter rival. Hence, we get all of the nasty 49er posts in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> you root as much against, sometimes more, you root sometimes more against your most bitter rival than you do for your own team. And you can't deny that. You, you know that that's just part of, of how we work. Sometimes our worst enemies, sometimes the enemies that hurt us the most are the ones who are in such close proximity to us. And it can be really hard to love the enemies who are closest to us because they have all the same network of connections that we do and, and when they wound us, it just sort of seeps out into your world. And you can't really, you can't really ignore it. You can't just make it go away because it just hovers and you can't escape it. See, it's much easier. <laughs> it's much easier to dismiss. It's easier to ignore if it's just an enemy that's far off somewhere that we don't see on a regular basis or we're not all that threatened by. We just label them as enemies. The enemies who are closest are the ones you, you can't really put out of sight. You can't, you can't put them out of your mind. They're just there. Those who oppose you and actively persecute you by tearing you down often do so to other people who you know and interact with. And our words are such deadly things. I mean, it's littered all over the Bible how much damage the tongue can do James, brother James, brother of Jesus in James chapter 3, he says no human can tame the tongue. It is, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You'll read that in the Proverbs, you'll read that all over. Much of the trouble that we find ourselves in as humans starts with angry words that we have for and against and with one another. Another place where we served, um, I'm, there's so many stories that, you, that I could tell, illustrations to use here, um, of the deadly nature of enemies who are really close 
the personal ones are probably the one that I want to share because it's, it's my own story. Another place where we served, I began hearing um, some rumors that were just not true. Um, we had moved in and there were some things that needed to be changed um, in the organization where I was working. And when you make changes, sometimes people are against you, right? That's just how it is. Some people embrace change, some people don't. It's all good, it's fine. Um, the reality was that there were some things changed and some people were really upset about the changes that, that needed to happen. And so instead of uh, direct, hey, can we talk about this? It was, uh, I started hearing it second and third hand all, all around me and ended up being uh, from somebody who was served on the same staff as myself. But the divisive nature by which they went about it began to, to rip, a, rip the unity of our community apart because there was a divisive nature in the things that they were saying. And so it wasn't, we weren't able to move beyond that until we were able to have a direct conversation about it and, and, and address it. And it's terribly harming to a place when, when we do this to each other. And usually it begins with the things that, that we say. And Jesus is, is calling our attention to these sorts of situations. And he's saying, you know what? The answer to this is to, is to practice loving the people who are actively trying to hurt you and bring you down. That's hard, isn't it? So it's not enough for... Um, it's not enough for Jesus to tell us, hey, don't lose your temper, you know, like how he did um, back in verse 21. Don't, don't let that anger rise up in you, that unrighteous kind of anger. And after he tells us, hey, you know, there's times you're probably going to be upset. There's going to be some times when, when people sling stuff at you. Hey, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. A gentle answer, I think is what the Bible says, turns away wrath. Don't lose your temper. Don't retaliate. And now Jesus commands us to love those who hate us and are trying to harm us. I, you know, you, you get to that point and you might want to say, why? It's an honest question. It's an okay thing to, to wonder that, to ask the question, why would... Why would you teach us that, Jesus? The, the only reason that he offers, if, did you notice this? The only reason that he offers for this kind of behavior is in verse 45. And he says, so that we may be children of our Father in heaven. Okay. Why, why couldn't he tell me to love my enemies because all the hatred and negativity is bad for my mental and physical health? I mean, that would be a good reason, right? That would be something that would motivate me. Like, oh, I didn't quite think about it. All that negativity and hatred that I'm allowing to well up and 
permeate who I am and what I think about all the time. You know what? If you lay that aside, you know, it might improve your mental and physical health. That'd be a good reason that Jesus could lay out there for us. Or he, he could say, um, you know, tell me that I need to love my enemies because spending energy hating them gives them power over me. Oh, that's true too. That would, that would be sort of motivating. Or, or maybe he could say, maybe he could tell me that I need to love my enemies because it proves who is the better person. He could tell me to love my enemies because, as Paul points out in Romans 12, 20, I think it is, that being kind to my enemies is a way that I can heap burning coals on their head. Yes, I love that. That would be good motivation, wouldn't it? But no, Jesus doesn't give us any of those. He says, do it so that we may be children of our Father in heaven. He seems to think that it's enough that we begin to reflect the character of our Father. <laughs> and so if we are to love our enemies, we need to see that this is what God does. God loves even those who are his enemies, even those who are dead sense set against him. He, God loves even those who push him away and, and reject him. He loves those who hate him. He loves the wicked and the unrighteous. And Jesus goes through. He gives us some evidence. He says, he says God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. That's true. Jesus says, and he provides rain for the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, that's pretty gracious. The rain comes to feed the crops so everybody can eat. And the basic necessities of life, God does not discriminate between those who love him and those who hate him. We do it because so that we may be children of our Father in heaven. And as children of our Father in heaven, then that means we are God's family members. And we are to watch our heavenly Father, watch what he is doing, see how he acts, and do likewise. Paul teaches the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5 I think it's right off the bat in verse 1 and 2. He says, be imitators of Christ. So we act like our Father. We take on the characteristics of our parents. We are to love as God loves. This is what's at the heart of all of the verses that I read this morning. 43, 44, 45, 46, and 47. At the very heart of that is that as family members of God, we take on his characteristics. When you love like God does, you are acting like one of his family members. Uh, there was a movie recently released on, uh, on Mr. Rogers, right? And I came across this. Fred Rogers, uh, the Presbyterian minister who created the Mr. Rogers neighborhood, 
He recalled the impact of Pittsburgh seminary professor Bill Orr. He says he was a great influence, not just because he was brilliant, he was the kind of person who would go out on a winter's day for lunch and come back without his overcoat. One day, while visiting Dr. Orr at the nursing home after singing the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Fred asked him about the phrase, the prince of darkness grim. What Fred asked is that one thing that would wipe out evil. That's a good question. Dr. Orr said, when you look with accusing eyes at your neighbor, that is what evil would want. The more Satan can spread the accusing spirit, the greater evil spreads. On the other hand, if you can look with eyes of the advocate on your neighbor or enemy, those are the eyes of Jesus. Well, what might it look like to aspire to take on more of the characteristics of our Heavenly Father? What, what, what would that look like? What would that do to your relationships, to, to a, a community of, of people? The question here, you know, it's, we've talked about enemies taking on the characteristics of our Heavenly Father and, and the characteristic that we, that we hear over and over and over again. And, and the command in Jesus' teaching is to love. So it begs the question, well, what kind of, what kind of love are we talking about? I mean, that's, that's such an uh, overused word in our culture that we can maybe sometimes get lost in what the meaning of love is. And it's not an mushy, emotional, sort of touchy-feely kind of Valentine's Day love, but it's a love that truly, deeply, passionately, intentionally seeks the good of others. The Greek word um, that's used here is, is the word agape, love, which means to seek the best for the other. God seeks out good for everyone, righteous, unrighteous, evil, um, not evil. So that's what God does. See, Jesus goes on, he says, you love like God does, and to hate your enemies puts you in the same league as the tax collectors and the pagans. Nobody wanted to associate with tax collectors and Gentiles, nobody that he was talking to. It would be like associating, it would be like Jesus calling them less than human. You don't want to act, you don't want to hate your enemies because that's, that's what the pagans, that's what the tax collectors do. Take on the characteristic of your heavenly father. If you still have your Bibles open, flip over... Um, uh, almost to the end of the New Testament in 1 John, in uh, chapter 4. I want to read a couple of verses here in, in a minute for you. Because I really want to spend the, the rest of the time that we have talking about love and what that would look like. 
If we're to take on the characteristic of love of our Heavenly Father, then it probably would do us some good to have a really good picture of what the love of God looks like, what shape that takes on. It's not hard to identify enemies, right? That's pretty easy to do. It's not hard to hate people who work against us. It's not hard to lash out and seek revenge and retaliation to blow our fuse. It's easy to be sucked into our sinful anger, but it's hard to love. So what is love? Uh, in 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, Jesus says this, or not Jesus, uh, John says this. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And verse 10 is, is one of my favorites because I, sometimes I just need the cookies on the lowest possible shelf, right? Like, I love all Jesus' parables, but sometimes I'm like, okay, what are you saying, Jesus? I think you're saying this. Sometimes I just, you know, just say it to me plainly. Okay? So verse 10, we want to know what is love, and John says this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the best definition of love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. His love is what? Made complete in us. That is amazing. So the world would give us um, definitions of love, you know, we won't spend a lot of time unpacking these, but there's an element of love out in the world that's just super trivial. We toss around the word love all the time. There's a notion of love that's out in the world that is conditional. We will love only if certain requirements are met. If you do this, if you behave in this way, then I will love you. There's an understanding of love out in our world that's sadly disposable. I will love you until it doesn't suit me anymore, and then I will kick you to the curb and discard it and move on. And then there's an the element of love in the world that's the sentimental kind of love, the Valentine's Day, warm and fuzzy. The biblical definition of love is it's more, it's more of a verb than anything else. It is a love that 
gives. The key word in understanding the concept of biblical love is um, in John 3, 16, probably the most popular verse, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will have, shall not perish but have eternal life. That's how it goes, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. So if you look closely at verse 10, you can, you can take verse 10 and you can, you can break it down into to four things to remember about love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So you can say that, that God chose to act. So love is, first and foremost, it's choosing to act. You have to decide. And you have to act on the decision that you make. So this is love. It's, love is choosing to act, too, in the best interest of someone else. So you have to make the choice, you have to decide, you have to act on that choice, but what you're deciding is that you're going to, you're going to choose the best interest of another. It's not about making you feel better personally, it's about looking out for another person and acting on their behalf and trying to make their life better. The third thing is whether they deserve it or not. So when you think about God's love for us, he chose to act. He chose to send Jesus to take care of the problem of our sin. It was in our best interest that he did that. And it, it um, something that we really don't deserve, right? So God chose to act on our benefit even when we really didn't deserve it. It's not something that's earned. It's something that's given. So it's choosing to act in the best interest of another, whether they deserve it or not, even if it costs you. It's a love that holds nothing back, something that calls you to give of your time. It calls you to give of your resources. It might call you to give up on your own personal preferences and desires, this kind of love is sacrificial. This is love. This is biblical love. This is how God loves. It's choosing to act in the best interest of another, whether they deserve it or not, even if it costs you. That's the characteristic of our Heavenly Father. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that we may be children of our Father in heaven. Children of their Father in heaven take on his characteristics. His characteristic is love, and this is what it looks like. And verse 11, encourage us, says to us, basically go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Wow. How do we do that? That's, that's a tall order, is it? isn't it? It's okay to say yes. That's hard. That is tough 
stuff. This isn't like basic level, entry level, 101 style teaching here. This is, this is the meat and potatoes of faith. This is where, to use cliches, the rubber hits the road. This is where we struggle and we wrestle back and forth. Some days we get it right, other days it's just hard and we succumb to the fight. But we can do it because we can do it because we are given a new heart of love. It's a transformation that happens within us. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 36, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says, I will remove your heart of stone. And I will give you one of flesh, one that is soft, one that is pliable, one that is moldable to my own characteristics. I will do that work for you. So when we think that, oh my goodness, I don't know how I will be able to do that, you don't have to do it on your own because God does the work in you. He replaces your heart of stone and he replaces it with one that's much more like his that beats for the people that he loves and beats for the causes that he, you know, thinks are right. He calls us into that kind of love. We love not because we're so loving. We love because God does. Because God first loved us. And when we get a full picture when we feel the full weight of the reality that God, the creator of the universe, loves us, it undoes us. We are just utterly undone. That's why we can do this. Another reason why we can do this is that God keeps pouring his love into us. So when we go out and we try this, and it's hard, and it wears us down, and we don't think we're going to make it, you know what? God doesn't give us one measure of love at the very beginning. He keeps pouring his love in. Every single second, every single minute and moment of the day, God lavishes his love on us. He pours it into the new heart that he gives us. And so when we don't think we have enough for ourselves, there's more than enough. And it's, we are so full that it just spills out and over. And we have no other choice but to pour that love into other people all around us. That's why we can do this. It's not on your own strength that this is going to happen. It's a work of God. It's the Holy Spirit inside you working through you. See, that's the basis for Jesus. We can just say that's an audacious command to love our enemies. It's because that's what God does. That's why he says it. It's God's nature. To love our enemies demonstrates that we are authentic children of our Father in heaven. And so in verse 47, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus asked the question, what are you doing more than others? When he, when he confronts us and asks us, his followers, what are you doing that sets you apart from other people? What are you doing that other people aren't doing? Your answer is, I'm loving. I'm loving like God loves. 
we consider what Jesus did for us, for all of humanity, righteous, unrighteous alike, it's the ultimate example of what it means to have a vulnerable love. Love is really nothing unless it's vulnerable. He loved sacrificially. He just taught us, somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Jesus was slapped. He says if somebody sues you for your tunic, your shirt, give him your coat as well. They took his coat. They beat him. He didn't respond in retaliatory anger or revenge. He loved him. So even while he was hanging there on the cross, remember his prayer? Father, forgive them. He's praying for his enemies from the cross. Father, I'm an authentic child of yours. I want to love like you do. I don't know what else to do except stay here and die so these people can be forgiven. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. There's no more vulnerable picture of love than that one. And so when Jesus says, what are you doing more than others? We say, I'm loving. In John chapter 13, he says, a new command I give you. This is Jesus talking. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. I've given you the picture of what it looks like. I'm going to make the choice to act. I'm going to make the choice to act in the best interest of somebody else, which is you. Because you don't really deserve it. The love isn't about whether you deserve it or not. I'm going to do it anyway, and I know it will cost me my life. He tells us, hey, this new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Do it the same way God does. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. The people of God said, Amen. Amen.